Welcome to the New Books Network. For the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. The great historian Eric Hobsbawm was a frequent visitor to the Institute in the 1980s and 1990s. In this episode, we look back at a talk that he gave in November of 1984 titled Literacy and the Tower of Babel. Uh, I begin with the observation which first put me onto this. Namely, that when the United Kingdom of Italy was formed, 1859 to 1860, the number of people in it that actually used Italian as the language of communication was 2.5%. The the estimate is by a leading historian, Italian uh, linguist historian, and consequently, uh, while I can't check it, it seems to me to be fairly interesting. Another similar observation was when I read in some French historian of Flemish origin and talking Flemish at home, who said the Flemish which was being taught in Belgium right now was not the language that his mother spoke. And to turn it the other way around, where we spend our holidays in North Wales, the local inhabitants who have talked Welsh as far back as presumably the 6th century AD look down on the people in South Wales because they say they don't talk proper Welsh, they talk school Welsh. (laughs) In short, national languages, that's to say standardised idioms which can be equally understood all over the place with uh, the requisite vocabulary, are largely constructed, even in some cases invented, for purposes basically of written communication. They are constructed initially as literary idioms, not necessarily for the fine arts or belles lettres, because, I mean, administration and, and, and political or legal purposes are equally important. And uh, there is, uh, even then, an enormous difference, even today in some instances, between the kind of spoken language and the written language which educated people use. It's very notable in Italian. You know, I mean, you read an Italian book, and it is not the Italian that the same people will be talking to you at home. Uh, I've noticed this occasionally uh, among American colleagues, uh, even though what you might say the general jargonization of language is such that uh, the literary idiom increasingly creeps into the spoken, uh, into spoken idiom, for instance, in the form of psychobabble. All right, why then no national languages uh, earlier on? Because, I think, they were the function of mass literacy and of states which wish to communicate directly with their subjects, that's to say, where you have a direct relationship between central government and the people at the grassroots as individuals and not mediated through the habitual pyramids, you might say, of intermediate instances, uh, communities, lords, and so on. Uh, because if you don't have this direct communication, it is not necessary to have a common language in a linguistic sense. Illiterate, in the illiterate era, 
illiterates communicate outside face-to-face -face groups, whether this is upwards or sideways, geographically sideways, through chains of intermediaries who may or may not be literate, but must always be polyglot, or at least bilinguals, if only because even two dialects of the same language, sufficiently widely distinct, are generally mutually incomprehensible. So to this extent, multilingualism is uh, more or less built into uh, oral, oral society and uh, the, the pre-national state society. Conversely, literate languages are entirely uh, lingua francas of elites. They have nothing to do with the real speech of people uh, at home, with their families, or indeed for social purposes. And so it is perfectly possible to have dead languages or foreign languages which serve this purpose, uh, as, for instance, uh, French for the Russian aristocracy, uh, classical Persian for the administrators, uh, administrators of India, Latin in the Middle Ages, and so on. Uh, and indeed, such uh, languages are indeed common, and there are languages like Mandarin Chinese, which I think are largely mm. such idioms. In I'm told that in Singapore today, of the Chinese population, only 1.3% actually speak Mandarin. About uh, two-thirds speak their Chinese dialects, and one-third speak English. Uh, now, this is true even of languages which are not, as it were, official state languages or administrative languages or instructional languages, merely cultural languages. Italian, German. Uh, Sheehan, for instance, has quite rightly pointed out that in the 18th century, Germany was not a political but a purely elite cultural concept. It consisted of a few tens of thousands or perhaps a hundred thousand people who read books in German and who read certain German literary and other periodicals. And Günther Grass in recently in, in, in his uh, little uh, book on the meeting at Telkte uh, has more or less uh, brought this up to date by a sort of allegory, 17th century allegory of what in fact German is today. German is not a political concept now but purely a cultural concept of people who communicate in a literary manner. And this is indeed still the case in Switzerland. Uh, German is the universal language of uh, cultured Swiss, but they do not speak it. What they speak is Schweizerdeutsch, even among themselves, even professors talking to each other, which is certainly a kind of German which I personally find the utmost difficulty in understanding. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is it could easily be classified as different a language as, as, as Dutch. Uh, the result of all this was a vast gap between the literate and the non-literate society. There were only a very few literate languages, Latin, Greek, Arabic, Persian, and Chinese <coughs> between them would get you from Morocco to Japan. And if you happen to be, well, uh, if you uh, we laugh at the sweep. <laughs> well, I mean, this is as wide as you might call an EQ many as you could. You see, among educated people, and if you were like some of the intelligent and well-educated Jesuits, you could have three of them at the same time. You see, 
you really were in a pretty good position. Uh, conversely, uh, out of the, I suppose, 8,000 or so languages with I don't know how many thousands of dialects which uh, are said to exist, before the 18th century, I would say only about 10 had a vernacular literature of any significance. Uh, possibly one or two more had uh, some sort of Bible translations or similar things, but basically you could virtually, that was what vernacular written uh, literature was. Uh, and uh, consequently an enormous cultural gap between uh, the world, world of the literate and the world of the non-literate, bridged by, as you might say, series of intermediaries <coughs> of which uh, initially the, uh, the priest or his, his equivalent and eventually the schoolmaster, the, the primary schoolmaster were the most important. Very well. Now, what happens today? Uh, today, or at any rate for the past uh, century and a half, actually century, virtually every language aspires to be a literary language. And there are, as they are now, what, uh, getting on for 2,200 states, nations in the uh, jargon of the United Nations, there are a substantial number of uh, literary languages of this kind. This is a natural consequence of the combination of literacy and democracy since mass education can only be vernacular education because only elites mm, have got enough time and resources to be uh, educated to an adequate level uh, in a foreign language or a dead language. So while formally every educated person was virtually by definition polyglot or at least bilingual because he or she had to speak not merely the language that they themselves spoke but the literary language whatever it was uh, today uh, increasingly uh, peoples are educated as monoglots uh, except for special purposes because it seems to me universal literacy and particularly in the 20th century the media have actually assimilated increasingly the written and the spoken language so that increasingly the difference uh, is no longer as clear uh, there's an interesting study lately showing that uh, television has for the first time actually uh, broadened the vocabulary and the scope of spoken Italian, which previously was virtually confined to domestic purposes, the kind of Italian that you, 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 you learn if you actually go to Italy, uh, you learn orally, because television has to uh, present a number of more complicated uh, narratives uh, and, and, and programs, and consequently, in a sense, uh, both the, the, the bridge between the official uh, and the unofficial spoken language is gradually eroded. So that, uh, in fact, today uh, people, a lot of people are monoglot in the sense that they may have a local accent like Canadians, which is recognizable, but basically what they talk is the same language uh, all, over, uh, all over the nation. Here, let me give you another example. In the British Academy, we occasionally have to pass on 
the questions of subsidies to learned journals. And one of the ones which from time to time demands it and to which with a sigh it is given is a journal of philosophy in the Welsh language. There can only be patriotic reasons for having such a journal since nobody, you see, who isn't demented, <laughs> deliberately choose to publish a philosophical treatise in the Welsh language, you see. Uh, nevertheless, it uh, brings out the sort of reductio absurdum of what happens, you see, with a universal literacy, that's to say literacy in in different languages, you know, scores of different languages, when nevertheless for certain purposes communication uh, is counterproductive, you might almost say, in these languages. <coughs> now, uh, in fact, in a sense, uh, the situation is much worse than it was before because we live, in, in, a, in a sense, intellectually in McLuhan's global village, uh, you might say the great predictions made by President Ulysses Grant or the inventor of Esperanto and all these other people that one day the world would actually have a single language have been verified to the extent that in fact there are world languages, except they're not Esperanto, it's English or at least... NATO. What? NATO. Yes. Uh, it's some kind of sub-English which is de facto uh, the world uh, the, the, the world medium of communication, uh, except that these do not replace uh, the vernacular languages, but, but, but supplement them. Now, uh, the point is, in this situation, in some ways, uh, the disadvantages of uh, belonging to a provincial vernacular are in some ways greater than they were in the illiterate period, because the body of transnational global knowledge which you need to have accessible, you see, is much larger, it changes more rapidly, uh, it's produced in a limited number of places and communicate in limited number of languages, and the smaller your own native language is, the smaller it is likely that the vernacular <coughs> contribution, either original or in translation, unless you happen to be very, very rich per capita, like, say, the Swedes, uh, is, is going to be. Uh, I mean, how many technical manuals are translated into Burmese, you see? And insofar as they are not translated into Burmese, a Burmese must know some language in which they're available. Otherwise, he can't do anything else except, uh, you know, be a sweeper on the airport rather than actually, uh, you know, do anything else. This, it seems to me, is, is in extreme case the problem we uh, confront today. Moreover, this is the point I want to make, in this new situation, they are, in some senses, an agent of class division, in the literal sense. This applies both to the world languages and to the uh, local vernaculars. Because since 1880, the 1880s, education has been the marker of social and class status. Um, in some ways, uh, both because it indicates it or because, uh, as with Bourdieu's intellectual capital, it provides access to something which actually gives you uh, a better life chance, higher education. Percentage 
proportion, I mean, you know, there's a correlation between the length of time that you stay at any kind of school and uh, your eventual status, income, and so on. In this respect, we all know that belonging to the educated classes, the Bildungsbürgertum, the Gebildete, you see, gives you an enormous uh, start, particularly in dominating uh, the poly polyliterate culture, relatively. Very well. Now, uh, the only compensation for this is, of course, the mass intellectual emigration on which some big cultures uh, rely, as it were, for the information and for their translators. But, and this is the final point I want to make, this also, I think, applies to small nation uh, vernaculars. Uh, you see, uh, <coughs> If you give a chance to the masses in uh, countries speaking whatever it is, Basque or uh, Quechua or something like this, and you say, do you want to have your primary education in these languages rather than in Spanish? They may for patriotic reasons say yes, but in actual fact they will not benefit, they will lose by this. And in fact I've come across examples of anthropologists in Mexico who uh, wished to have uh, some local Indians educated in their own language and found the trouble is the Indians don't want it. They want to learn a language that will get them somewhere which doesn't limit them to sticking around in their marshes, you see. Now this is a problem. Uh, it's a real problem. Uh, it, um, um, <clears throat> so uh, unless they are forced they tend, if it doesn't mean that the language has to go, because people can go on talking their own language, it just means they give up uh, having it as a literal language. On the other mm. hand, the middle class, the intellectuals, take it up in a big way. Uh, in Ireland, as the Irish stop talking Gaelic, as they've gone on doing at a tremendous rate ever since uh, the mid-19th century, a knowledge of Irish which was imposed as a condition for joining the civil service and, uh, is, and, and high school education uh, during the, um, from the early 1920s on became a mark of middle class status like knowing Latin and Greek in the old days. And the people that discuss Irish literature and discuss it are people who are graduates and not the peasantry. The peasantry don't, don't know anything about Irish except a couple of words now. And I think the same thing is true, if Tema will forgive me, in Catalonia. Uh, uh, the estimate was that, uh, for instance, in 1980, of the daily press circulating in Barcelona, 6.5% of the circulation was in Catalan. The rest was in Spanish. And the Catalan culture which flourishes is the one which produces splendid historical journals like uh, Richerks and Avance and stuff like this, but which appeals quite patently to what you might call the Catalan equivalent of the New York Review of Books uh, <laughs> audience. Uh, very well. So what, under these circumstances, is the future of language? Are we returning to a two-tier linguistic world in which a handful of languages, perhaps one, are, as it were, major media and others are content, as it were, to have another function? I don't mean that they have to disappear, although let's not make any bones about it. Some languages do disappear, you 
see, the odds are less because there'll be some intellectuals reviving and some people at this very moment are reviving Cornish, rather like uh, re restoring the aurochs in, you know, by crossbreeding from bisons and things, things <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, but still, is the future of, as it were, the language which are not the major languages to be something like Yiddish? Uh, a language, a private language, a language which has its own culture, which has its own literature, <laughs> which used to have it, even its own theatre, but which does not and never actually claim to have a public official function. Is I.B. Singer, as it were, <coughs> not the last of an old tradition, but the first of a new tradition? And at that point I will leave you. <laughs>